we are all becoming aware of how strong Ukrainians are, how resilient they are, how powerful they are, and how outspoken they are. And I think that culture has formulated our company even before the war started. Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Well, welcome back to the Sans Fuel Podcast. I am your host, Jeff Maines. In case you missed it, in last week's episode, I talked with Jim Kane about growing multiple SaaS companies, working with family, creating teams, finding product market fit, and targeting a well-defined market. His company, Red Chirp, has a really unique market space uh, working with regulated industries. So one of my biggest takeaways from last week was what he called conversation enders. It's a, a super powerful tip. So if you haven't listened to it yet, I highly recommend you check it out. You can look at the show notes to go right to that point in the podcast or listen to the whole thing because it's actually a lot of good things in there, lots of nuggets. Uh, that was just one that really stuck out to me. So my guest this week is Andrew Amon, serial entrepreneur and founder of a startup studio called 923. So since co-founding 923 Venture Studio in 2012, Andrew has helped launch countless ventures for clients and emerging companies and turned his business into one of the fastest growing private companies in America on the Inc. 5000 list. Andrew is an experienced entrepreneur and entrepreneur, so inside companies and outside startups on his own. He's responsible for patents on nuclear submarine components. You heard that right, nuclear submarine components and three supply chain innovations. I mean, I take that as this dude is smart. I'm going to listen to him. He successfully launched 12 startups, including the digital business card solution Inigo app acquired by Royalty. Andrew excels at bootstrapping startups without the involvement of venture capital, which I love. And he currently helps businesses grow with innovative web and mobile technology solutions and has built over 50 applications supporting millions of end users, including a unicorn. Today's episode is sponsored by my book, Small Fish Big Pond, building a world-class business that swims circles around competitors. So why do some companies achieve explosive growth while others sink into the depths? What do exceptional SaaS companies do that mediocre companies don't? And what can SaaS leaders learn from fish? Small Fish Big Pond delivers powerful business lessons guaranteed to change the way you view your business and includes hands-on exercises and growth tools to get lightning fast results. Get your copy today at smallfishbigpond.com. Use the code SASFUEL to unlock special bonus content. Well, my guest today is Andrew Amon. So Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about your background. You're a multi-time founder, and so a little bit about the, the companies you've started and the project that you're working on today. Sure. So we started 923 Venture Studio in 2012, and so we've been building products for the last 10 years. We built our own product, which was Inigo, and that was our uh, internal venture that was sold in 2016. And from there, we took the team, and we continued to build projects for clients, and today we've built 50 client projects and 14 startups. Uh, those 14 startups are ones that we've either internally started ourselves with our own ideas or entrepreneurs have come to us where we have equity and we're helping the entrepreneur build their vision and their dreams. Uh, so of those 14 startups, we've had two that have been acquired and we have one that's over 100,000 annual recurring revenue right now. And we're about to launch two more in the, in the month of May. Uh, and those two products that we're launching, one of them is a video recording software for memes on social media, uh, which is a fun one. And then the other one that we're launching is a Spotify for food delivery application. Wow. That is a really wide diversity of companies launched and, uh, and applications. So how do you come up with the ideas? How do you iterate that fast? Yeah, there's three cohorts that I like to talk about. Uh, at the beginning of the agency, we were young and ambitious. And we came up with all the ideas because we thought we could create a whole bunch of startups and, and see which ones were growing or, or becoming successful. And the way that that process worked is I'm, I'm the dreamer of the team. And I have a co-founder who's 
a little conservative, but also sees where the risks lie. And I, I have a board and there's about 200 ideas of, of product ideas that you know we could develop. And I would bounce them off of him. And most of them don't really work because of you know the timing, the execution or the market. But every once in a while, there's that product that you just kind of keep repeating. And you're like, hey, I saw another opportunity that this product could work in. What do you think about X, Y, and Z? And when that starts happening, we start really honing in on how we could build it and we end up building it. And so, like I said, at the, the first cohort, we really developed those products from those ideas. But when we got to the second cohort, the second five apps we built, we were focusing on other people coming to us with their ideas. They were just on the younger entrepreneur stage. Now, as we've developed as an agency, we're getting those three, four-time entrepreneurs that have already had exits and they don't want to go venture-backed anymore. They just And they don't want to hire like a CTO. They want to hire a full agency to build their product. And so that's our third cohort where it's really becoming more successful apps as opposed to, you know, ventures with risks. That's a smart way to go. I mean, you're working with something that is a known quantity instead of going out and trying to build a team. And it's interesting. You brought your team from the the past. I think it's really interesting when that happens. You have a, a team that goes with you from one company to the next to the next. Yes. So tell me about that. Yeah, we started in 2012 and it was just myself and my co-founder. And we had learned, I learned the sales and marketing. and He learned how to develop apps for Android, iPhone and the web. And we spent about $50,000 in six years, or I think it was about five years of our own money. We were really bootstrapped. You know, we were working two jobs. We weren't confident that it was really going to be that successful. And as we got towards the end and we started seeing traction, we dove all in and we started hiring teammates. We started helping us scale and grow that product. But in the end, what really mattered is when the person came to us to, to buy that product, they wanted the assets. Uh, they wanted to be able to put those assets into their product. And what we realized is the, the fun that we had was with the team that we had built in that last year or two. And that team was, was able to build client projects. We were able to build new ideas. And we started resourcing people from all around the world. And so we've been remote our whole lives. And that team that has really been curated uh, is just a great group of engineers, designers, QA, and project managers that really love working with us and loves iterating on all of our startups. So what is the the, the secret to successfully working remote? I think all of us have, have done that to one degree or another over the last few years and some with, with great success, some like you have been doing it for a long time and others uh, would, would never, unless they were forced to yeah. have remote teams. And so we've seen them do that as well. What have been the, the biggest secrets to, to building that cohesive team, uh, even when you're in different places? Yeah, I think there's phases of success when you're remote. And the first phase is that you ambitiously want to be remote. And so for us, you know, we were both having kids and we wanted to be home for them. And so we were trying to do whatever it took to make that work. You know, we were working the two jobs because we wanted to be remote. And so when we finally were, it didn't matter that there was a right or wrong. It mattered that we were home. And I think that drive is what first matters to wanting to be remote. Once you get a taste of it, then now you got to figure out how to work with a team as a remote company. And I think for us, the, the first step of that was getting on Slack and being great communicators, but also understanding that people are in different time zones and working around that. And then lastly, I would say the third phase of, of really enjoying a remote team is if you focus on the procedures and the processes of how a company needs to work remote for them. It's not something you can find online. It's not something you can you know, pull from a book. You really have to work with who your culture is and how your team operates best and hire individuals that work within that culture and then make sure that the procedures and processes that are created for your culture are then being exposed as a, as a remote company. Yeah, that makes sense. Is the culture, is that something that you create and you hire people for the culture? Or do you hire people and then they make the culture? I think at the beginning, the culture comes from who you are and kind of your core uh, morals. And when you, my co-founder and I have the same business morals, you know, we fight on how things are designed or how things should be like put into production, but we don't fight on business ethics and business morals. The really important. Yeah, exactly. And I think when you have that, there's a core that already is, is out there in the ether. You just have to write it down. And so it's not hard to get those initial morals into the remote procedures. And then once you do that, you start finding like-minded people that also enjoy working with you because we have our core morals 
and we have our like we have our understanding of how we're going to run a business. We just need to find those individuals that are are like us. And once that core team is formed, I think people gravitate if they have that same type of of ethics or morals or uprising. They kind of believe in the same things, and so they see that during the interview process. And so then I think what's happening is the team then curates the culture from there. That's really interesting. It kind of a you know chicken or egg, and uh, it, it's kind of both. It is both. So you're you're building the culture, and then the team is taking that the the next step. Yeah, exactly. And I think the team then creates the culture from there because what you find is when you start with ten people, the culture is really formed around the founders. Sure. But when you grow to fifty, and we're at about sixty-two right now, there's groups. There's the developers. There's the engineers. There's the project managers. There's all these different groups that are getting formed and they're working on something in a silo. And there's a culture for the project that they're working on. And I think it's important that there's the core culture, but then you have to adapt and abide to how people are interacting with each other. And so the team then formulates how we should behave as opposed to us now, uh, not dictating, but pushing forward our culture. It's the culture then starts adapting to the team. That's great. It's, it's a good process. I like that. The the team subculture, I think a lot of people don't realize or, or just don't think about that, that being the case. Correct. When you work remote, you end up finding specific countries that work well with you. Um, we found early on that Ukraine was just a phenomenal country to work in our culture. And so we've hired a lot of people from Ukraine. I think it's over 130 at this point over the course of the 10 years. And that culture has a very specific way of, of understanding business. So a lot of our adaptations and, and business ethics have been formulated, and we are all becoming aware of how strong Ukrainians are, how resilient they are, how powerful they are, and how outspoken they are. And I think that culture has formulated our company even before the war started. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we've done the same thing. Eastern Europe has been fantastic. In uh, Ukraine, Moldova, we've got a really large team there. Yep. So great, great people. Yes, they are some of the best, and we're all here to witness how great they are. So you've mentioned your, your co-founder a couple of times. Some people start businesses by themselves. Uh, I think co-founders can be really, really good. What have you found to, to be those synergies and, and how did you come together to, to start this company? Yeah, the synergy is having the same passion for your family and, and your retirement and your life and what you want to do on your day in and day out. I, I joke with my wife that I spend you know every day with Pavel, my co-founder, and we probably send a thousand messages a day, right? Between the two of us or within the projects. And so the amount that I'm communicating with him over the course of a day, never mind a week or a month, is massive compared to how much I'm communicating with my wife. So when you're making that decision early on, you really are looking at a marriage, right? It's the same philosophy. It's somebody you're going to spend 10 years of your life with. And are you interested in doing that with that person? And if not, you need to move on to another co-founder. Right. And so Pavel and I have been together for 10 years. We have been through so much together between the war. We've been through COVID together. We both got either laid off or removed from our initial jobs after we first met. Pavel made the decision himself. I got I got laid off. We've been through marriages. We've been through kids. We've been through deaths. And, and it's really become this friendship, you know, just over time of growing together and then building a business on top of it and having the same direction of what we want to be in our lives. I love that. And it, it is it is so true. We spend so much time with our coworkers and, and founders, co-founders, business partners, that uh, having that kind of relationship is super important. Yes, yes. It's vital to the success of the team because I think if the team is going to put their time into a company, they want to see the results and the output of their, fi- I call it their fingerprint, right? They want their fingerprint on the products. They want their fingerprint in in the world of things that we're building as a team. And if the founders are supportive of that, you know, that vision, then I think it helps them and it helps us through recruitment as well. Yeah, without a doubt. So you've mentioned that the company name nine to three, you were originally working, uh, both of you and Pavel were working jobs when you started this. Tell me about the origin of the, the company name nine to three. I love that. Sure. So in 2014 through 2016, we were both working two jobs. I was a mechanical engineer. I worked on nuclear submarines and Pavel was working at a company called Profitect in Boston. And so we knew we wanted to do an entrepreneurship and and own our own company. And we both independently wanted to know that before we cohesively wanted to do that together. 
And when we got together, we, we started creating a product like it was the product was called Inigo, but we started building this without really knowing the output, right? We knew we wanted to be successful. We knew we wanted to work remote and we knew we wanted to own our own business, but we were just like two kids building apps. The X product of that, like the, the thing that came out of that was we ended up getting pretty successful. We had about 600,000 downloads on that app when we sold it. And you can see the growth basically from when we met to when we sold it. And we had to quit our jobs at the end to make it all work. But as we were building all of this, we were doing two jobs and the Inigo part came from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. And so Pablo would take a nap at like six o'clock in the afternoon after his day job. I just kind of powered through as much as I could. And this was before kids for both of us. Sure. You know, 9 p.m., we'd sit down at our computers, our wives would go to bed and we'd work for four to six hours, you know, pretty much five years, seven days a week weekends included on this product and it's brought us to here today. So it's been totally worth it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. The, the story, I think that's the, just the grind. Yeah. Uh, so many entrepreneurs, the grind, the hustle. And, and I love that instead of just going out and, and raising money or, or trying to, to get somebody else to fund your dream. Right. It's, it's really that, that grind and hustle of making it happen for yourself. Yep. I mean, have a, a special place in my heart for bootstrap founders for sure. Thank you. I like to say the five year overnight success, right? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so with uh, growing your companies and getting your products out in the marketplace, what have been the best strategies for sales and marketing and, and driving leads, raising awareness? I think the two biggest things we've learned is one, you need to do sales and marketing from day one. That's like, without a doubt, when you're building a product, you really have to think, how is this going to get to the customers? And can you predict the amount of customers you can get in a month or in a year? But the other two things that I was unaware about in our first products, especially when we're building mobile apps, is the power of SEO and the power of Google advertisements. Those two are age-old internet hacks that allow you to grow your business. But when you reverse engineer SEO, you really are creating a long-term business that has no way of failing, right? If you're gathering 100,000 clicks on your website every day, that form of marketing is never going to go away. And so to build that early on and to build the core functionality that creates blogs and content that formulates, you know, as many downloads and clicks as you can get, that's important to start uh, as soon as you release your first product or as soon as you even think of your idea. But then um, the Google ads, the, there's two main marketing channels of, of Google ads. I mean, I guess they're advertising channels. you got to target your name. So whatever your product name is, just put that into the Google ads, put $10 a day on that. And let Google inform Google that your product exists and what the keywords are. That boosts you better than anything else out in the market. And then retargeting anyone that came to your website for 10 bucks a day, $20 a day, that retarget thing is probably the best marketing tactic I've ever seen for any of our products. That's really smart. I like that, that you're actually in control of your lead source when you're, you're, you're doing SEO. Yes. So you're not uh, putting it in the hands of, of some other company. Yes. That uh, could shut down your ad account and uh, make your leads go away. Yeah. More importantly, it's the foundation of the internet. It's how Google was built. It's how many companies are found today. It's through that search bar. And if you create that foundation in Google or Bing or whatever you're using, you're creating a foundation in which people will continue to find you. And there's the theory of large numbers, but you know we're not going to wake up today and tomorrow like 10 people buy Microsoft stock and then a million buy it the next day. The theory of large numbers means that every day you can kind of predict the volume of how many people buy a stock. And it's right. the same for SEO. Every day there's going to be a certain number of people that have X number of searches and you need to get in that search. Oh, that's that's really good. When you're setting a, a price for your product, how do you go about doing that? Is it just make something up or do you look at competitors? Or yeah. you know, What are the, the different ways that, that you could do that in figuring out what is the market price? Yeah, it's one of those questions that has a a long tail understanding of what is the product, what is the market, and how is my pricing going to affect this market or be a part of this market? And so there's different theories on this. And the two theories that I've been you know, talking to people about recently is one is our theory that the product should be at least $83 a month. And we picked that number because obviously if you do $83 a month for 12 months and you get a thousand customers, you'll have a million dollars ARR. So the other part, yeah, exactly. It's an easy number to remember. 
But the other part of picking $83 a month is that you are selecting a product that has $83 a month of value. You're not picking a $7 product and trying to get 200,000 people for the same million dollar result. You're picking an $83 product that you have to create the value for. So you're building a product in which uh, can only needs to suffice a thousand people using it as opposed to 200,000 or 300,000 for the same million dollar ARR. But then there's this other part of, of pricing your products, which is really understanding your competitors and putting yourself in a place to succeed. And when I hear people that say, I'm just going to drop the lowest price and push people to my higher price range, I wonder if that industry already has a low price product that people are aware about, that when you drop your low price, you will not succeed because the high price is no longer worth it, right? So I think the first part that I was saying of the $83 a month gives you a kind of a foundation or a baseline. But the important part is knowing when a customer has options, what are those options? And if they don't select you, where else are they going to go to suffice their needs? And if they that pricing point leads them to another product, don't cut yourself short and try to fit within the market. So then it's not just about dropping the price, but but really upping the value. Yes. Yes. So making sure that you're at that 83 or, or higher, which makes a lot of sense. Right. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's a whole lot better to to do that than uh, like your seven dollar product and because you have to sell so many more. And the the argument that I make is I can know a thousand customers. I can know them by name. I can recognize the long-term players. I can know a thousand customers. I cannot know or remember a hundred thousand customers. And when you have a hundred thousand, your churn rate, let's say it's 10%, you're dropping 10,000 people every single month, right? To pick up another 20,000 to stay profitable. When you have a thousand people, you drop 10, you drop 20, you pick up another 30. You can recognize the business, you can recognize the health, and you can stay on top of your customer requests without kind of drowning in the noise of them just being a random digit on your computer. Right. Yeah. When you say losing 10 or 20,000 a month, I mean, that just, you know, just hearing that <laughs> scares me. <laughs> yeah. When we built the Nico, that's what was happening. You know, we, when you get those large numbers, we had 600,000, you know, you'll fluctuate, you'll, you'll drop 10,000 people in a month and it won't blink an eye because you know, you're getting 20,000 downloads a month. Right. And right. those numbers, they get so large. I don't even know who the people are in that number. I just know that 20,000 is coming next month and we need to keep that number higher. But when you have a thousand, you're like, hey, Joey and Jimmy and, T- and Timmy are canceling. They've been a customer of ours for like six months. Let's right. call them. Let's go find out why. Let's let's learn about our business. And when 20,000 drop, you're like, oh, what trend line changed this month? Not who is or what is the reason? Right. And it, that would make it a whole lot harder, I think, to to really identify what the root causes are, the things that you need to do or improve or change in your product. Yeah. Yeah. When you're talking to customers, you understand why they're there, why, what they're paying for. But when you have the 10,000, you just care about how do you churn the little dial or turn it just a little bit to make it a little bit more successful. And I, I love the idea of talking to customers and, and calling them and knowing them. That's where the real value is. Yeah. And if they're paying that $83 a month, what would you say needs to be the multiple in the value that they get every month out of the solution? Yeah, that's that's a tough one, right? Because what are you solving time? Are you solving a money problem? Are you solving a production problem? Are you helping them help other people, right? The value is always intrinsic on who they are as a person and why they came to your product. A lot of SaaS products are just saving 2% of a salesperson's day. And you know, 2% of that day, if they didn't have your product is important, but is it the end of the world? I don't know. Right. We, we run a product called alter live, which is replacing how churches do zoom. And I think if they lose our product, they have training, they have, you know, 40 or 50 people in a community that have learned how to use the software. They're running their most precious day on Sundays to make sure that the software works. That's a tough loss. Right. And the value of that could be thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. So it depends on the product. It depends on what you're offering and what value the customer sees in you. We're going to take a quick sponsor break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Andrew about of all the innovations and ideas that he's seen, what are the common threads of the ones that uh, are super successful and the ones that maybe fall a little bit flat after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Champion Leadership Group. Champion Leadership Group helps B2B SaaS entrepreneurs successfully cross Death Valley. 
Did you know that only one in 40,000 companies grows to 10 million in revenue? The rest either stay small or die along the trail. Champion Leadership Group is on a mission to solve that and help SaaS founders grow to 10 million and well beyond through a unique proven process that is mentor-guided, results-focused, and peer-supported so that SaaS founders, entrepreneurs, and CEOs achieve sustained, profitable growth, positively impact their community, and enjoy the freedom that they became an entrepreneur for in the first place. To learn more about accelerating SaaS growth and for free growth tools, visit championleadership.com. And we're back here on SaaS Fuel. My guest, Andrew Amen, three-time founder and uh, CEO of 9to3. And we're talking about to what makes apps successful and uh, trends that he's seen innovations. I mean, evaluated hundreds and hundreds and would you say thousands maybe of innovations? Getting there. I don't know if I'd say thousands yet, but <laughs> definitely in the hundreds. <laughs> hundreds, high hundreds, maybe thousands. And uh, so what are the trends or what are the things that you see, the common threads of something that is successful in an idea and makes a great app or software application versus some of those other ones that, that kind of flop? Sure. So when we get a lot of bids, like you're saying, I think the trend that we're seeing recently is the focus on community. We've gotten a lot of interest in building community apps, whether it's like a copycat of Facebook groups. You know, I talked a little bit about Alter Live, which is a community or like a faith community. Um, But we're also getting interest in restaurants that are trying to figure out how to interact with their influencers, not using social media and not, I'm, I'm sorry, not using like paid advertisements really focused on, you know, the people that are coming to the restaurants and how can they enhance their lives. We're also seeing a lot of trends in people trying to build machine learning algorithms. I think we're realizing that we're holding on to a lot of data and a lot of businesses are trying to determine how the anomalies in that data can help make better business decisions. And so we're getting a lot of interest in, you know, sorting information quicker, trying to find anomalies in data quicker. Like there's a a few people that have been interested in real estate, trying to determine how the housing market is moving. And because we are starting to store data at a very cheap price, I think a lot of people are now trying to uh, show interest in extracting the information at the right time. And then for the metaverse and things, you know, as an as a app company, you kind of have three futuristic directions. You know, we hope mobile apps stay around for a long time. And I think foldable phones are really going to be that catalyst that changes the the app landscape into a combination of like a laptop slash mobile phone that fits in your pocket. And so I think as app developers, we have to start focusing on how foldable phones are going to interact with our lives, uh, including wearables like watches. I think there's going to be detachable watches that come off your wrist and, and be a part of your phone, right? And that's how you charge it. You can switch the displays out. And, and utilize these foldable phones in a way that we can't even really imagine yet because we haven't seen the possibilities of, you know, basically think about folding a laptop down to something that fits in your pocket. Wow. And I'm also interested to figure out what the next input device is. Voice doesn't have its full place yet in our society. You know, we shout at Alexa and Google Home, and I'm sure something's going to go off <laughs> in my house as I say that. Right, right, right. Uh, look at this, see if mine's going to light up. Yeah. yeah. The voice is great for certain instances, and our 10-finger typing is great for other instances, but I'm curious to see where we can start using our minds and kind of maybe our eyes or the placement of our eyes to do other input devices to make our lives easier. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Uh, we're, we're definitely sitting on just mountains and mountains of data uh, to be mined. So I think that's really interesting use case of machine learning and uh, and how is a you know, like manufacturing background fed into that and the machine learning and and how that works? It's really shaped our leads that have come into our company. You know, in the last year, we focused heavily on trying to find leads that fit to our culture, and we've hired a lot of really smart engineers. Like our developers are just these these really grinding and smart engineers, and that to keep them educated and to keep them you know kind of on top of their game. They don't want to be building social media apps all day long. They want the challenges. And Pablo and myself, both coming from manufacturing backgrounds, have found that there's a lot of challenging applications in supply chain and solving supply chain problems. And I think our engineers appreciate those challenges of moving products around a shop floor or trying to understand how 
our mobile app can fit with an IoT product, you know, so connecting to a device or connecting to a watch or a camera. We've done all those types of things in the last few years. And when we get on a sales call, I can talk about bill of material breakdowns. I can talk about how, you know, upstream and downstream interactions can happen. But I can also talk about why it's important to understand how a Bluetooth technology can interact with a piece of hardware because I've done it before. I have patents in the space. I've worked on nuclear submarines where we were physically doing that. And I think that that expertise helps sell products. And I think when you're talking to a bunch of different app companies, you come to us and you're like, oh, like these guys know manufacturing. I think it not only helps the sales, but then it helps our engineers work on hard problems. That makes sense. Do you see apps continuing like they are? Do you see more of a blend with uh, with web technologies or getting closer to that? or further away? If there was no gatekeeper, so if Apple and Google didn't restrict the use of their apps to be inside of their walled gardens, I think we'd all be using web apps today. There are certain functionalities that cannot be done in an actual native application, you know, location tracking and things like that. But for the most part, the apps you use on your phone could have been fine running in the browser for the most part. You know, 5G is really opening up the doors to having fast internet all the time on your phone, low latency, you know, and the capabilities of sending information back and forth. We don't have to trick the phones about storing something local, then sending it to the cloud later when you have availability or being restricted on your data plans, right? All of those restrictions have led us towards this app that needs to do all of these in-house manipulations to ensure that the user is getting the right results with their cellular network. But with 5G and with, you know, I think the push of of faster internet web apps, we're going to see a little bit of a blending. It's just the matter is Apple and Google going to allow us to interact with an iOS app that's also a web app. Like, are they going to allow us to combine those? And and I think that that's interesting, just, you know, the the walled garden concept. Are you in favor of, you know, having a more open open operating system where it is... uh, you know, more freedom for the developers? I'm not sure about that. I like the way they they operate because it does provide a steady business. When you do have a walled garden like that, you you support the, the concept of similarities in libraries. And I think those similarities allow us to build consistent applications for customers, regardless of kind of use cases. It's predictable. It's predictable. It's reliable. It's scalable. You understand, you can kind of repeat your processes and make promises to customers that you fully understand. And Google and Apple have done a great job of supporting that by always keeping those libraries updated. I think Android even supports back to like 4.6, right? And we all know the famous Microsoft stories, they've supported back to like Windows 3.1 or whatever, right? (laughs) Right, right. And I think those are important. I think it's good that these operating systems understand that the developers are developing for their customers. I don't know if you took the walled gardens off what will happen. It's kind of one of those dynamic situations or like black black swan situations where we don't really know the result until we're actually in it. And we see how the marketers are going to kind of mess it up and right. then we can kind of fall into place. <laughs> oh, yeah. Leave it to those marketers to mess it all yeah. up, right? <laughs> yeah. You give them anything and they'll, I mean, they'll at least find a way to find a hack around it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what we do. You're good at it. <laughs> So as you've built multiple companies, what are some lessons that you've learned along the way? And the things, you know, if you go back to the beginning and tell yourself one thing, what would that be? Yeah, startups are hard. Startups are really hard. The products that you're trying to build, they take a lot of work and they take a lot of sales and marketing. Finding a product market fit is never easy. You know, you you always think you have a few customers in mind. And if you could just solve for those customers, you know, another hundred will come. But it is a constant grind to not only go from zero to one, but from one to two and from two to three. If you don't have venture back money, you're constantly weighing the fact of how much should I put into this to how much time am I you know, physically putting into this? To what is my reward? Those factors without a venture backed concept allows you to, it doesn't allow you, but it like restricts your ability to, to grow as an individual because you're balancing all three. Going back, I wish I would have told myself to, Remain humble as a consultant, remain humble as like an apprentice and don't be ashamed to walk into an office or a place and say, can you employ me if I just help you? 
right? Can I just work for you? Can I help you? I have an idea of how your business can run better, smarter, faster, but I'm not going to pitch that now. I'm going to pitch that I want to learn how your business works and see if my idea can still operate within your business. And I think if we did that earlier on with our agency, we would have seen more leads earlier on that were just interested in us learning from them and then saying like, now you've learned my business. Can you help me solve my problem? Or one of our original ideas we would be able to put into the ether and say, can we build this alongside with you? Yeah, that's a good idea. I love collaborative projects like that. Yeah, exactly. And if we learned that earlier on, I think we would have been in higher collaborative states now. Uh, we're starting to get there. We're starting to get better. You know, people that are coming to us are four or five time entrepreneurs. So we're there. But if we had learned this earlier on, we would have seen that success at year five or year six. And now we w- would be building these collaborative projects that have lifelong effects. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's it's great. It's not something I've heard probably anybody else say. It was just the humility. Yeah. You know, back in the beginning. And I think that's a, a really important thing, being able to go in, not uh, you know, here I am, I know everything. Yeah. But uh, you know, really, you know, understanding first and then adding value uh, along the way. I think that's brilliant. I think the reason why you don't hear that is when you're an entrepreneur, you listen to Gary Vaynerchuk or Seth Gooden. Or, you know, now it's Naval that everybody's listening to. And the, the, the story that they're telling us is get venture backed, get as much money as possible, go on TechCrunch, announce your valuation, and then say that you're the CEO of the company and that you're growing this multi-million dollar business, and then see if you can get an exit. But that isn't for everybody. And it's not so, also not for every product. Our style is like, I want to be home. I want to be with my family. I want to have a good life. Like I want to be able to work when I want to work, but I also want to be able to be at home when I want to be at home. And if you have those two separate visions, you can't interact the two. Right. And I think if you focus on the family, you're like, hey, how can I help people so that I can just be happy? Right. Because if I'm going to help you, I'm going to eventually get a return on reciprocation as opposed to if I'm building a venture backed company in some sort of tech crunch article. I'm constantly trying to figure out how to get more growth at all costs. Right. So I think that's the difference is why you don't hear that story because I think society pushes entrepreneurs into get money, get growth and tell people how awesome your growth is. <laughs> and that happens a lot. Yeah. Uh, my philosophy, I mean, we certainly want to see growth, but I think the philosophy of getting there is very different. Yes. And, uh, you know, with bootstrap, it's not about just going out and raising a bunch of money and, and, uh, and telling everybody how awesome you are, but actually creating real value. Yes. Uh, in, in a way that's profitable, that's sustainable, that adds something back to the, the community. Yes. And, and that's where the value comes. That's where the exit comes and, and, and you do get there. Yes. But it's just a different, a very different path, very different philosophy. And I think what you build is really different if you're building for quarterly gains versus building for your clients and adding value to them and making their lives better. Two completely different things. Correct. And I mean, my favorite stories is the local guy that has figured out how to power wash, you know, everybody's houses in town. And he's, you know, going on every single house and you keep seeing his signs everywhere. Those are the successful stories where you're like, you know, he hustled, he figured it out, but he also, he's not gloating on the newspapers or the tech crunches, but he's more successful. He's happy. He goes home every day at five o'clock. He hangs out with his kids, right? Right, right. That is success to me of yes. freedom as opposed to like getting your, your face on a tech crunch. Right. Different definitions of success, I guess, for different people of, uh, you know, why they're building and what they're doing. Exactly. Exactly. So product market fit is something we've talked about several times and seems really elusive sometimes for entrepreneurs. How do you know when you have product market fit? Uh, what is it? And, uh, and how do we keep it? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I've learned is product market fit exists at different points in your product journey. And you could have product market fit for a thousand dollar a month product. And then you never can get to $5,000 a month because that's a different type of product market fit. As you grow your customer base, you're going to constantly start with the, the early adopters, the people that find you and want to take a risk on you. And your product market fit might be to adhere to them, the features, the subset, the advertising, you might want to attract those early, early adopters. But as you get to the mid range, you're going to want to increase your prices and you're going to want to increase your customer base to pay more a month or to have a longer lifetime value. 
that's a different type of product market fit. And it might not even be in the same ballpark as your original product market fit. You might have to change the structure of your company. You might have to change the entire web page to advertise a small feature set as opposed to the entire feature set. And as your product continues to grow past the 10,000, 20,000 monthly recurring revenue, you're going to discover that you might be an enterprise first company. I mean, HubSpot's a famous example. Their product market fit, you know, when they went public, I think they had 10,000 customers or it was like 100,000 customers paying $10,000 a month. That is like a small number of customers for a public company. It is. But $10,000 a month means a massive commitment. And if we all realized that in 2015 or whatever, that that was their market share, we all would have been millionaires because we would have jumped on that bandwagon. And like if those 10,000 people just grow to, I mean, sorry, those 100,000 people just grow to a million, those the 100,000 original people are never going to quit. They're paying right. money. It's an enterprise contract. But prior to that, when HubSpot started, they were doing the onesies, twosies, you know, sign up for my product. I'll give you this $5 feature. You'll have it for free for 95 days, right? Right. They started just like we all do. And now you look at HubSpot's product market fit. They are a replacement for Salesforce. And that's the product market fit. But that wasn't the case five years ago. You couldn't do anything in HubSpot that replicated Salesforce. Now they're looking like they can overtake Salesforce because their product market fit has changed. So I think as you grow as an entrepreneur, you have to understand what the next level is, what the next plateau is, and how to achieve that product market fit is just as important as the current one you're in. And that kind of leads me back to one of the things you mentioned early on was the the board that you have with with 200 ideas and, and what what may fit now. What I thought was really interesting is you don't just take ideas off of there and go, this is this is not a good idea and we're not going to do it, but they they stay there. And so maybe it's it's a not now thing. Uh, so you're picking things off of there that are now and, and some that may be later, but some of those things may spur ideas for other products, sure. like two or three iterations down the line. So how do you how do you manage the board and uh, how do you know what to take off of there for now versus later? Yeah, sure. Uh, it is a notion board. It has you know about 200 on it. And I think it's important the ideation the ideation phase is a muscle. You constantly have to practice the, the concept of thinking of how something will work in a marketplace and figuring out the risks that that product will have if it was released. Then determining, is it still a good idea? And if not, how can I modify or adjust the original offering to make it work for a different subset of people? One that I just saw yesterday you know, on this board, I was, I was glazing it last night, was a product for ranking your app based on the, um, like, let's say there's a stock price, right? So like Microsoft, right. you know, Snapchat, Instagram, all those, and relating that app store ranking to the stock price. Now, interesting. the reason why I just thought about this again is I was looking at Zoom. Zoom has not changed in like 25 years, I don't, since they've been founded. Like they have not changed a single icon or UI. It's white screens everywhere with like silly blue buttons in the middle of the screen. And they have all this opportunity. And before the pandemic, you probably could have predicted by the download rate that their stock price was going to follow suit. Nowadays, you can probably see that Zoom's download rates are dropping and their stock price is dropping. And I wonder if there's a correlation that you can predict or adjust to figure out, all right, their downloads like Snapchat went up, I don't know, 20%. I'm I'm just guessing. Maybe their stock is going to follow suit. And maybe there's already an idea out there that does this. But as I was looking at Zoom, I thought of the idea that I had about rating apps and their growth in the app store based on their stock price. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. I I love ideas like that, that are are connecting things that are not obvious. Right. So, you know, stock price versus app downloads is just not not a correlation a lot of people make. So, but there, there would be value in something like that, being able to predict. Exactly. I mean, there's that intrinsic value, like you could definitely make money on it. But there's also just the cool concept of these up and coming apps that will start getting momentum. And you're like, hey, I wonder how this app, why people are downloading it. What is their product market fit? And you're like, oh, like we can build something similar to that or we can compete against that or that's already competing against one of ours. Right. So I think there's value in those too. Yeah, that's really good. So the, the concept of a startup studio, which we, we mentioned right at the, the very beginning, tell me about a startup studio and, uh, and how is that different than, than maybe other, other app builders that you would see out there in the marketplace? 
Sure. So we became a startup studio just because we started defining ourselves as a startup studio. I am now learning that there's a whole bunch of other startup studios. And when I say a whole bunch, uh, GSM did a research, GSSM, and they only found about 100 official startup studios. So there's not, you know, hundreds or thousands of us in the world. I'd love to compete in a market where there's only 100 I know, right? right? <laughs> I know. And they're not competitors as much as they're like people to learn from because we're all so different. Sure. Um, and what a startup studio really is, is the concept of building something repeatedly over a set, set period of time and using the same resources to build that widget, right? So a factory is a, you know, a, a supply chain and they're building a widget from, from raw material all the way to the shelves, right? And sometimes they send it to different factories, but that process, they can get better, more efficient, and it will save them time and they'll be able to create more money from that, but they'll also be able to create more value for their product. A startup studio does the same thing. We understand how our product is built and we have the team around us to build that product iteratively. And because that team has done this, you know, 50 times for clients and 14 times for ourselves, we've held on to those resources and those teammates. And when we see a new product come through the door, we can use the similarities of everything else we've used in our past to build faster, more efficient, and a more scalable product than you would get if you were to try to build this from scratch. And I think the best example is when you think of an entrepreneur trying to start a company, they have the option of going venture back. They have the option of going to an incubator or an accelerator. There's this new concept that is really us, which is a startup studio, where they don't need to hire a team themselves. They don't need to handpick engineers, developers, scientists, project managers. They can just focus on the sales and marketing and product market fit. And they can hire a basically a startup in a box that's going to build their product. And as they focus on finding product market fit, they know that they're going to meet us at a specific date with a ready-to-go product that will scale, that will not break, and that will be beautifully designed. And I think when you marry that up, entrepreneurs are starting to realize, especially people that have done it before, there's more equity in it for them. There's more growth possibility for them. And they get a set price. They know exactly what they have to raise. They know exactly what they need to set aside for the studio. But then at the end of the day, they get a partner and they get a friend that's going to be with their product for the rest of their life. That's really nice. Uh, I think it's a, a really good concept. And it would not surprise me if we see you know some companies here in the near future go public that essentially have no employees. Yeah. That they, they've worked with a startup studio like this. They brought a product to market. They, they've sold um, you know, and got a got you know users out there, and and they're they're at a point where they can IPO and and essentially have you know no debt. Their cap table is really clean. You know, they they've got a great product, and and they're really benefiting as owners, right? And serving the community as well, right? And I agree. And the only argument I make is that if you are finding those individuals, they're mostly happy with the success that they've had. They have a lot of equity. IPO is not even part of their future. They have a product that's creating value on itself. They're able to pay everybody that works for the company. They're able to extract additional profits every single month or year. The investors, if even if they had small-time investors, are getting their returns as well in the form of dividends. Everybody's happy. Or royalties. Yeah, it's like everybody's happy in this situation. IPO just sounds like a lot of stress. That sounds like work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so maybe yeah. they just sit where they are. And, you know, you see some businesses do this. Um, like the guys I was talking to at Dentley, Dentally, they built a uh, CRM for dentists and they have almost the entire European market, you know, secured. They can grow. They can be better and stronger and faster, but they can also be very happy with what they've achieved and continue to to steadily provide, you know, enough support for their customers to keep their customers happy. Right. And it's, it's those types of businesses that maybe don't need to IPO and that just like keep the entrepreneurs happy. Uh, there are a lot of advantages to being private. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. I too. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Andrew, it's been a great pleasure talking with you today. Where can people learn more about you and nine to three online? Sure. So I'm very, uh, heavily involved in Twitter. <laughs> I will. That's where I go to get my news. That's where I go to chat with people that I meet at conferences. Uh, so Andrew Amon, my handle is at Andrew Amon. And then our website is uh, 923.co and it's spelled out with the letters. So N-I-N-E-T-W-O-T-H-R-E. 
And then for the most part, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, please feel free to do so. But our team is uh, based out of Ukraine and we're supporting their safety right now. We're supporting their needs. And I know, Jeff, you have people in Ukraine as well. We're thinking about them constantly. So if you are coming to any of our social media sites, you'll see donation links, supportive links and things like that to help the team and help the troops over in Ukraine. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew. And we will link all of those in the show notes, uh, including places where you can donate um, to uh, to Ukrainian relief. We appreciate that. Thank work you. a lot with uh, Novo Ukraine. been fantastic. I think uh, yeah. you guys do as well. We do. Same one. Yeah. Yep. So we'll link all of that in the show notes. And uh, again, thank you, Andrew. It was great having you on the show. Thanks, Jeff. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for the insightful questions. Thanks again to Andrew for coming on the show and sharing his insights and resources. You can learn more about Andrew and check out his company at 923.co and check them out on all social media. I mean, these are the guys to go hit up if you're looking to build and either don't have a team or need special skills to complement the team that you do have. These guys are fantastic. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. One special link I want to give a mention to is our friends at Nova Ukraine, and that's novaukraine.org. You'll see it in the show notes. These guys are the real deal and doing a huge service with the, the war right now in Ukraine, providing meals and medical care and supplies, first aid, and refugee support. So continue to pray for our brothers and sisters and friends and employees in Ukraine, Moldova, Poland, Hungary, Romania, Slovakia, and all of the affected countries in, in Eastern Europe and beyond. Uh, lots of countries over there are serving refugees. So donate to organizations like Nova Ukraine, fantastic organization. But continue to donate, uh, pray, and take some time and thank God for the freedom and peace that we enjoy and often take for granted here. So as a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, leave a rating or review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. Let me know what you think and give me your feedback. I'll be sure to read those out on a future episode. Tune in next week for our conversation with Today Bogatai, a SaaS founder who has innovated in the e-commerce space with huge results for businesses with his company, Cartboss. So until next week, we meet again. Enjoy the journey. I think we're good.